from the creators who brought you RuPaul's Drag Race and Million Dollar Listing. This is World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wow Report, uh, where we count down every week the top 10 things in this past week that made us go wow. wow. Um, I'm Fender Bailey, co-founder of World of Wonder, joined by our chief creative officer, Tom Campbell. Sounds like a military assignation. You should have a medal or something. Salute. And uh, our editrix-in-chief, why not in chief, James St. James of the Wow Report. Yeah, for the, our radio listeners, you can't see, but for the viewers at home, I look like I'm wearing a crown made of neutrons, don't I? Yeah. I, have, I look like I'm a space goddess today. You're actually framed by a circular globe logo surrounded by electrons that I drew. That I drew. <laughs> That's you. Well, it looks beautiful. I look fantastic right now. This is the best I've ever looked. Don't go anywhere without it, James. (laughs) All right, let's start the countdown. I think we should start at number 10. Number 10. I am obsessed. I know we say that a lot. I am so obsessed. I am beyond obsessed. I will mention this to anyone who walks by me near my home. I am listening. I hope you are going to start listening to Talking with Lucy on Sirius XM channel 104, just two channels above Radio Andy. Um, quick backstory for those listening, Lucy Arnaz, who's 70 years old. Do you feel old yet? Lucy Arnaz uh, is doing a documentary about Lucy and Ricky because if you live long enough, you can do three, four, five documentaries about your parents and they're all worth watching. Now, Lucy Arnaz, for, for the people who don't know, is Lucille Ball's daughter in real life. Who Yes. yes. And Desi now, Arnaz. And she's responsible for, for their archive and for keeping it all alive. The movie that's coming up, she's involved in. Anyway... She found while doing research for a documentary a year's worth, like 200 episodes of a radio talk show that Lucy did in the year 1964 and 1965. And they're saying that she's the creator of the podcast. I'll give it to her. She, with her husband, Gary Morton at the time, her second husband, she's carried around either that she'd have people in her home with a tape to tape player and she'd invite people over and talk to them, or she'd go to their hotel or she'd go backstage and if you can just think of who's who in show business in 1964, who's a, a megastar, they are interviewed by Lucille Ball. These intimate things. They're 10-minute segments. And then she's like, oh, my God, we just started. James, you mind staying until next week? Here's who she's talking to. Edith Head, Bing Crosby, Mary Tyler Moore, Carol Burnett backstage and Broadway, a, a, a newlywed Barbara Streisand in her new apartment, uh, uh, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, Milton Berle, Sinatra, Milton Berle, um, um, Arlie. Okay, I'm obsessed. And then obs- uh, weird people had a harp hopper. Oh, Arlie oh fantastic! Did. Yes, Arlie I am, uh, uh, alone for the Edith Head of it all. You know, the great costume designer of Paramount, right? She was at Paramount. Yes, yes. And, and Hedda Hopper, who was the great gossip columnist I'm obsessed with. Have these never been heard before? Were they used before for something? Was well, they, they, they aired on the radio at the time, and then they've just been in storage for 57 yes. years or whatever. They just haven't, and there was never really a, a venue for them. And now it makes perfect sense. They're on Sirius XM right now, and I think they're going to eventually be podcasts so we can all listen to them forever and ever. They list, I listen to them in my car one after another. There's so much insight. It is it is just this microscope on a certain time, on a certain, you know, mm. and also it's all about, you know, Lucy wants to have people know celebrities in a different way. So it's like Edith Head, it's more about like, well, what's your house like? 
you know, so she explains a great deal of her home. And what, well, that's, that's the interesting thing is that it's not Lucy being Lucy. It's Lucy. She's the chain smoking CEO of, of Desilu Productions. And she's she's getting to the, the, the nitty gritty about these people's lives. And she's she's kind of tough on some people. And she's no nonsense. And like the Mary Tyler Moore, which I listened to today, it's not about she's she's saying, you know, you're a good kid and you're going to go far. But, you know, tell me about how you learn to do this and how you why you do put your hands like this. And what's their dance training? Like she's really she's she's a, she's a tough boss is what she is and it's a whole different side of lucy than many people know and she's good at it you know sometimes yes. people don't trans- she's she's curious she's inquisitive she's kind she's tough love and it flies by because they're 10 minute segments um i am obsessed james do you remember maybe fenton arlene doll oh my god yes the wigs i love she's down where i was i loved arlene doll. she is um lamas uh Fred Lamas's Lamas's son. His wives the wild redhead of hollywood yes. yes and then she was an astrologer for many years it's 1964 she's on with lucy she speaks and, and lucy has sort of a bit of a mid-atlantic accent too you know the, oh but arlene was very hot lucy tells us what a great you know norwegian beauty she is which she was and it's like i'm here you know tell us arlene doll you know what 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 are, what, what book have you just written she goes well it's called ask a man and it's 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 a fashion book for women, but I've spent the last two years, Lucy, talking to important men in business and in entertainment. And you know, some are leg men, some are breast men, some like an elbow. An mm. elbow? Yes, Lucy, everyone loves something. But <laughs> what they're all missing, what they are looking for, femininity. And you know, these there's this, you know, trend with boots and pants and fedoras. It's just you know, Brenner told me it just makes women sit different. You know, it's just this it's and it's not even like it's archaic. It is in a way, and it's so exactly how you know, it's just and people are able to articulate Bill Bixby, the young star oh. of I'm married, you know, uh, my my favorite. I love Bill Bixby. Yeah. I, I I love that that Bluesy is always saying, Well, well Orson Walls used to tell me, you know, like it's it's very much like FDR was in my apartment once. I have a question, which is I, I, I one difference you just said is that people speak in complete sentences and they're yes. able to articulate themselves. But another is like, how is celebrity different? Is it does it feel more approachable? Does it feel more intimate? Does it feel more real to the people? Or is it still starry, starry? I don't, starry? I don't think they feel real. I, with the mid-Atlantic accent and the, and the highfalutin airs and, and everything, I feel like everybody knew they were stars and acted accordingly, even when they were with other stars. Don't, don't you feel like that there was sort of a rarefied air of, of what was yes, happening? Yes, but I, I, the way that Louis framed it, and Lucy is now... 14 years and she's doing the Lucy show. Here's Lucy. You know, I love Lucy is coming. Okay, oh, Vivian Vance is on. That's a yeah. good one. The Here's Lucy show. And then it's about, um, you know, she's been a, in Hollywood since the 30s. You know, so she's had this incredible career. She's in her 50s talking about this. She has teenage kids. Lucy's 13. Desi Jr. is 11 and a half. And she's married to Gary and very happily married. But she always makes show business feel like it's a lot of hard work. It's, you know, preparing for those breaks it's being professional and and it's kind of a club that she's really proud and excited and privileged to be part of. 
which I have to say years ago, I know we have to go, but I used to talk my way back to see Steve Lawrence and E. Gourmet when they performed in Vegas in the 90s. And just the fact that I ha- I was from ABC at the time or MTV, they'd bring me, let you get, like, come on in. Because after the show was like a party. It's like, we're all in showbiz. Let's have a drink. Let's enjoy this incredible, you know, fraternity or sorority that we're part of. And that's what it feels like to me. It feels like, like, like Lucy is definitely a, a more of an elder, but she's, she's um, imparting all this wisdom and, and, and extracting it from younger performers. I Love it. I might talk about it every week for the next 16, 17 well, right. Everybody can just leave the show now and go over to 104 to listen to Let's Talk to Lucy on Sirius XM. But if you do stick with us, you will get James St. James at number nine. Number nine. As obsessed as you are, Tom, I am equally obsessed with a show on HBO Max right now that every queen in the country is going bananas over. I'm talking about the White Lotus. My God, have you all watched this? Do you know what I'm talking about? It is the game. Well, we're going to get to that. Tom is making an obscene gesture right now, and we'll get to that one. But it is the gayest of the gay shows ever created. It stars gay icon Jennifer Coolidge in the role she was born to play. She has never been better. She plays a nutty, lush rich woman. It takes place at this um, very expensive Hawaiian resort and spa. And so there's a number of of people who come in and they all sort of intersect and everybody is sort of like living these sort of strange lives. But Jennifer Coolidge is just beyond bananas and she's there to, to spread her dead mother's ashes in the ocean. And she has a series of breakdowns over the course of the six episodes and it gets better and better and better. Also, Connie Britton is in it and Connie Britton is at her most brittle. They don't call her... She's Connie Brittle. Britain is what she is. And she is a nasty CEO, sort of um, uh, neurotic overachiever. And she brings her family and she's like controlling everybody. And she, her husband is Steve Zahn. It's really fantastic. Uh, Molly Shannon is in it. She's absolutely brilliant. So good. Um, and also, uh, Alexander Daddario, there's also, I don't know if you guys remember this, a couple months ago, maybe a year ago, there was a boy who was asked to audition over his phone. And when he was doing it, the director started saying, oh, these people in the, uh, these disgusting apartments. And he, and he said, I can hear you. And I, if you give me the job, I'll get a better apartment. If you remember that, it went viral. Well, he's yeah. on the show. And he's just absolutely adorable. And he gets his ass eaten by this man in a scene that is so lewd and crude and fabulous. And you just think, well, God bless, he got himself a job. And I'm glad that this is what the job is. It's so fun. If you aren't watching this, you need to, because you can still get caught up. There's um, five, there's five episodes so far. The, 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 the final episode is Sunday. Yes, Tom. I know I have to watch it because everyone's talking about it. Everybody. Is it, is it an anthology? Is it like The Love Boat? Or like, yeah. how does it? Well, they have been renewed for second season, and the second season is going to be a whole new cast. I think they're going to keep the same manager. He's sort of this Machiavellian manager who is controlling everybody's lives and sort of inserts himself into everybody's lives. Um, I, I yeah. can't wait to watch it. You know, it's written by Mike White, right? Yes, yes. Who is, who, Buck who and Chuck, Chuck, isn't it? Isn't that what yes. his first thing was? Yes. Uh, Pasadena. Um, yes. And he is a nut in the first degree. And every single scene, it leaves you just unnerved and and weirdly like 
feeling creepy and grossed out. It's so, and it's just cringe, but it's, it's just fabulous cringe. And you just keep waiting because everybody keeps getting deeper and deeper into their craziness. One tiny interesting detail is that he is the son of Mel White and Mel White is in the Eyes of Tammy Faye documentary. He was a pastor and he wrote biographies of Jerry Falwell before he came out as gay and left. So it it all comes back to Fenton, no matter how far we get, it can all be dragged back to Fenton. I am building you a segue of all mother tucking segues. Number eight. (laughs) Number eight. I've been reading a book and it is called Jesus and John Wayne. And it is by Kristin Cobas Dumas. And the subtitle of the said book is how white evangelicals, corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. I know we're not allowed to mention his name here on this show. I know he's no longer the the president, but I have always been confused by how it was that 82% of good Christian Americans would have voted for someone who's married multiple times, I thought you had just I thought you had told us that the reason why was because of Jerry Falwell's or because of the pool boy in the the reason. Well, that's the reason how he managed to get into power. But nonetheless, still, he required 82 percent of these people to vote for him. You know, the endorsement helped. But it's still there's a paradox of how the Christian Christian people could support someone who's so fundamentally antagonistic to all Christian values. He's. You know, I'm not, there's no need to. Well, God, God, God's um, uh, vessels are not always perfect. But it's so interesting. She charts the evolution of what she calls the militant evangelical Christian right. And one of the most fascinating parts of this for me anyway, was this idea that emerged in recent years, especially post-Vietnam of, you know, those pictures of Jesus Christ. He's white. He's got long blonde hair. He's gentle. And they hate that. That whole idea went out of fashion. And Jerry Falwell, Mel White wrote his biography, Jerry Falwell was one of a number of people who sort of moved to have portraits of Jesus as a warrior with a sword, with muscles, with short cropped hair. And part of this package of beliefs was also that men dominated and that women were required to be subservient because men's libido was God-given, and therefore women married to their men needed to accommodate this, needed to make themselves sexy and subservient. And by extension also, any feminization was seen as the devil's work. So kids, boys growing up who weren't manly enough, gay, were just seen as the devil. And so you get this really interesting evolution of ideas in which gayness is certainly you know, problem number one, same-sex marriage, of course, problem number two. And it just, it's the creep of a worldview that is, you end up at a certain point, I guess it's like an egg in boiling water. You don't notice it at first, you don't notice it at first. And then maybe 25, 30 years of bus, and you're like, WTF? You know, they say they believe in the Bible, but this isn't what's in the Bible, you know? Um, I, it's funny because it, just as you were talking, I went in and Googled Jesus, sword, short hair, and I got a picture and it looks like he, he should be wearing a trucker hat. He's got the beard. He looks like he could be driving a tractor. Like they know exactly that you turn. Yeah, exactly. Tom, you you turn Jesus into a Midwestern maggot, MAGA head and you've got yourself some some followers. You sure do. I mean, you, and you have you have 
preachers who talk about, you know, the nation being pussified and you don't want to raise children who are pussified. It's like, it's a really, really interesting thing. Even though I've read the whole book now, I still don't know that I've got the whole picture or been able to take in the, the whole picture. And of course, the ultimate irony is that here are these people believing in the Bible and saying everything in the Bible is true. No one was white in the Bible. Not a single one of them. So Benson, where- when, when, why are you looking for the truth? It's all, religion is just a master manipulation. It's just a, a, yeah. a brand name stuck to like whatever they want it to be. Well, you know, I have a sister who's evangelical and I can, I, I could sit down and tell you some stories about what they believe. It will just curl your toes. Well, you, you must be going straight to hell in her book. Oh, that, she's the one that hasn't spoken to me in 30 years. Oh, okay. Because well. I'm gay. <laughs> right? What? Yeah. Oh, that's true. I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to move on. We'll, get, we'll take a break. Um, it's a really good book, though, by the way. Um, Wojnarowicz is screening at the Outfest Film Festival this Sunday. That's August 15th. And you know what? It's free screening at the, I think it's at the DGA. It is. Um, you just go to outfestla2021.com and you can get a free ticket. And there's going to be also a, a discussion, a Q&A with Chris McKim, the director and producer, uh, in conversation with Dave Holmes, who is the co-host of Homophilia, which is a WOW podcast. So I all you evangelicals Holmes. out there, come down, get a load of Fuck You Faggot Fucker, the Wojnarowicz film, which is completely brilliant. I do say so myself. You know, if you say "fuck you, faggot fucker," uh, uh, Blake disappears. It's like Beetlejuice. <laughs> I know. Well, no. and today is Friday the thirteenth. Right. So, uh huh. Um, I wanted to ask, how many times a year is the most amount of times that we could have a Friday the thirteenth? Okay. Okay, we'll have the answer right up. Thank you for that reminder, Tom. I just. Was off there trying to think of the answer. We'll have the answer for you right after the break. You're listening to the Wow Report on Radio Andy. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with Tom and James and Blake. We're counting down the top 10 things this week that made us go wow. We had a little teasy type question to keep you tuned after the over the break. Um, what was it? Well, since today is Friday the 13th, I've asked, how many times is the most amount of times you can have a Friday the 13th in one year? I think you can only have it twice. Twice feels logical to me. Well, there's 12 months, so you could have it 12 times, but there must be some mathematical problem. So I'm going to say five. Three. So close. Yeah. Why is that? I don't, well, it's because of some mathematical thing that I don't know, but. uh, Don't press press him. Don't press him. (laughs) There's only one this year. There's only one next year, but there were two last year. Right. All right. Well, that's why I said it. Yeah. Well, happy Friday the 13th, everyone. We're doing the top 10 countdown. We've reached number seven. Number seven. I started talking about talking with Lucy. Now I want to talk about cooking with Paris. There's a new show called Cooking with Paris, Paris Hilton, on Netflix. It has dropped. I got through one episode. Um, Here's the weird thing. You're not obsessed, are you? (laughs) 
uh, I love Paris Hilton. I love that she exists. I love that she um, thrives, that she looks better than ever. Um, I don't know that I can watch her for long periods of time. I'm not trying to be mean about that. You're just not sliving. Yes. And is that new? Because sliving is the word. This is what you get. Sliving. So she's like, my sliving gloves, which means slaying and living your best life. So every that's her new, that's hot. It's sliving. Everything it's the new smizing is what it is. Sliving is the new smizing. There you go. And so it starts off and, and they're just, they're doing the right, everything right in terms of making fun of Paris. And she's in the grocery store and they shoot it really like Stepford wifey. And she's in like in a pink Barbie gown and buying cereal boxes and through lots of voiceover, you get that she's going to get married. So she's going to have children. So she should learn how to cook. And so she's calling all her friends in her home with her assistants that are around, but they're not real characters in the first episode, but you know, party planners and assistants and her house is all white to begin with. I think it's a real house and her kitchen. And then she has, you know, thousands of balloons have been brought in and we get a little, you know, and then she invites over um, Kim Kardashian just to bring it down to balance, you know, some real and Kim Kardashian does come off as Martha Stewart next to Paris. There are, glimpsy tiny moments of like oh my god these guys have known each other forever how cool that they're together talking but it's really flat and it's a parody of cooking shows i don't even like cooking shows so i'm not missing like takeaway or anything but it's just i don't know what it is because the parody isn't strong enough or she's not but paris is her whole affect is flat isn't it i mean it is yes and, and that's what i'm saying and and but to me, it's sort of simple life means no exit by John Paul Sartre. Because <laughs> heaven or hell is people, right? It's just the idea that you get into this like closed space. Because it's, it's, it's making fun of everything the way the simple life did. But you had a Nicole Richie and you had people. You had farms and cows and, and co-workers. And to bounce off just, of. And she has nothing to really bounce off it's of. It's just ingredients and, you know. Be and other people that. like her as opposed to someone who can, who can be a foil. Yes. Didn't um, this start with a YouTube video? Didn't she do a YouTube video of cooking? Like, this isn't, this isn't the first time we talked about the show. And she I know. Cooked, she cooked lasagna on Instagram or something. Oh and it got 800 billion hits which made somebody in Netflix say, let's make this show. Um, and, and, you know, she has like a, a cookbook that's all bejeweled that Kim says, oh my God, you used to always bejewel things. Oh my God. And it's all handwritten in different rainbow color markers, which you kind of know Paris didn't do. <laughs> so it's just a lot of production to sort of prop her up. And they're kind of admitting she's being, including her, she's admitting she's being propped up. I mean, there's nothing egregious happens. It's just... It is the flat effect. Okay, I'm going to give you some some incredible dialogue and then we can move on. Kim Kardashian is like she's cutting bacon and the recipe calls for them to cut it inch slices. And Kim goes, does this look like an inch? And Paris says, I don't know. I don't have one of those measuring things, meaning a ruler. Um, another one. Um, uh, she's making, uh, she's makes homemade marshmallows based on her favorite cereal, which are Lucky Charms. So it's like a, a aqua colored marshmallows and it's not going well. And at some point she pulls out a little flame thing, which makes me think of drug use. And she, um, is, 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 you know, crystallizing them on top. And Paris goes, why is it turning brown? And Kim says, because it's cooking. Thank you. Um, and then the other thing is, um, at one point, uh, Kim goes, do you have tongs? 
And Paris says, what's that? And then Kim's like, it's the picky up things. <laughs> they, so, well, I, I, you know, the show that I want to see is you performing Cooking with Paris. I want, I'd like, I'd watch a whole half hour of that. It is a Saturday Night Live sketch ready to happen, but without the punchlines. It's, it's, I, I, and I think we know, I think people we've worked with worked on it. I'm not trying to shame anyone. I just, and there's more like she, she makes tacos with sweetie and, you know, but I've read some other reviews and I don't think I'm going to stick with it. It's just, it's, 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 yeah. You aren't going to binge seasons one through 10. I'm trying to figure out what I would have. I'm always thinking, cause I, you know, I would want to work with Paris. Like what could they have done? I don't know exactly, but, but it, that's when I came up with uh, simple life meets no exit. That's, that's my review. Have you watched it, James? I have not, but I love Paris and I'm not going to say a bad thing about her. Did I, I, I thought I was as fair as I could be. You trashed her like I've never seen you trash anybody before, Tom. I'm in, she's going to send a hitman after you. You're just, I mean, that was one of the worst things I've ever heard on the show from you. Moving yeah, on. Yeah, you're like Sarah Sliverman. <laughs> Sliving. <laughs> Moving on to number six. Number six. Number six, I want to talk about the biggest news of the week. A bombshell was dropped on the entertainment industry, on the comic book industry, when it was revealed that Robin, Batman's Robin, is bisexual. He is officially, canonically bisexual. He came out this week in a comic book as um, he was defending some boy and he started getting these thoughts and feelings. And at the end of the issue, he goes up to the boy and he says, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know what is going on, but I want to know more. And the boy says, will you go on a date with me? And he says, yes, yes, that is what I want exactly. And when I tell you that if I would have had that at age 10, my whole life would have been completely different. It is so wonderful to see. And I want to just, you know, this is, um, oh, yeah, Fenton, you were going to. Oh, James, I just want to know how your life would be different. I would just know well, that. I, James, just, everything would have been better from that moment on. Like, I would have felt, like, accepted. I never would have had to go to New York. I never, I could have just stayed in, in and Michigan. And what would completely... we have lost? <laughs> You'd be like a bank teller in Florida. I something. would. I would be completely happy with where I was, what I was doing. Um, this is not the Robin that you know, Fenton, from the from the TV show. The, Batman has had a number of Robins over the years, and they all die. They grow up. They become other superhero okay that's what has to happen if you're, they, if you're they try and get away die. from batman because he's creepy and controlling this is tim drake okay and tim drake has always had a little bit of a gay vibe around him he's been dating this girl for about 20 years named stephanie but he's also had this bromance with superboy and every gay nerd knows that when Superboy and, and, and Robin get together, that sparks fly. And everyone has been hoping for this forever and ever and ever. So it's very, it's, it's very satisfying to see. And Nerdist did this wonderful column about the history of Batman and Robin's queerdom. And oh, post that link. I want to read that. Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating because just in a quick nutshell, that 
Batman be, and Robin being gay is something that, you know, has been in pop culture forever and ever and ever. People have been making fun of it. And in 1954, a psychiatrist wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent, in which he said that comic books were perverting the minds of young Americans and that specifically Batman and Robin were the wish dreams of homosexuals to live together. And that phrase right there almost brought down the comic industry. Parents refused to let their children buy comic books. Batman and Robin specifically, their, their sales plummeted. And in 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 reaction to that, DC butched up Robin, made him like a ladies' man, and they gave Batman Batwoman to mar- to get married with. This is and, and so to- fascinating because yeah, you know, there's and- no question. I was six years old watching Batman and Robin, the TV series. I was obviously responding to the gay vibe. Yes. I didn't know, but you know, and my parents banned me from watching it because they thought yes. I became overexcited and over because it was an older man and a younger man that he's adopted, and yet they, you know, they walk, go around in tights, and it, it was it's a very gay setup. It always has been, and but but. They've since made Dick Grayson that that Robin. He is the he is the biggest ladies man in comic books, and he to this day. So until last week, the you know they DC has made a conscious effort to try and get away from the queering of Batman and Robin, and so it's a big deal that Robin is now you know they've uh, finally gone back to their knitting. Yes, yeah. <laughs> So it's just it's it's big big news, and I'm just so happy. Congratulations to Tim Drake. <laughs> we gotta post that link. All right, we're gonna move on to number five. Number five, Val. Have you seen Val? It is on Amazon Prime. Oh, the Val, yeah, the Val Kilmer documentary. Oh my god! Oh, everyone is talking about it. Val Kilmer. For for anyone, for that one person who doesn't know. He was the Iceman in Top Gun. So he was Tom Cruise's antagonist and rival in Top Gun. And for that alone, I will always love him. Yes. Please. And he was Batman. And thank he you. Everything he was Batman. And he was also so beautiful. Oh, uh, remember so... in Top, was it Top Secret that the movie that he did that was sort of like Airplane? Remember yes, that? Yes, yes. yes. I mean, literally, that just blew your socks off how beautiful he was. And a great actor. Yes. Really, a great actor. Knew how seductive and beautiful and hot he was and played it so well. He was also, of course, Jim Morrison in the Doors movie. Um, he was had, supposedly had a reputation for being very difficult to work with. And... But he was an actor's yeah, actor. That's why. Yeah, I mean, he was a perfectionist. He wasn't, a, he wasn't just a pretty boy. He was an actor's actor. And... Of course, his denouement, or one of them certainly, was the island of Dr. Moreau, which by <laughs> all reports was the disaster of disasters. All of this stuff, all of this stuff, for all of this time, he had a film camera with him, a video camera, and was, like Nelson Sullivan, our inspiration and uh, friend, rest in peace, videotaping everything. And then, twist of fate, he gets throat cancer. And mm. now today, although he's relatively healthy and cancer is in remission he basically cannot speak and he has a hole in his throat and in order to speak he has to put his finger on the hole and croaks out and to see this beautiful adonis transformed as he himself says i look awful i you know it's it's in in some sense heartbreaking but in another sense this film is amazing and you can tell, he said, I've always wanted to make a film about actors and acting. 
And this is that film. And it's his footage. He filmed it. And he spares. There's no vanity in it. He he plays the, yes, I was a gorgeous twink. But he also plays the tragedy of what's happened to him without any self-pity. Uh, his life now right, basically is going around conventions, you know, signing autographs. And he... It's sort of heartbreaking and moving on the one hand because he doesn't shy away. He says, people may think it's sad that I'm living off these past roles, but to me, it's all I can do, number one. And and I, I'm so grateful that people come. And so I, it's, I was in tears. I thought it was such a powerful film. He's so funny about playing Batman. He says, every kid wants to, your dreams of being Batman. But he says, you don't ever want to play Batman. He <laughs> says, the suit. You Once you're in that suit, you cannot move. He says, after two takes, you need air conditioning, respiration, artificial, you know. Um, and he also says that, that, um, uh, that when you're in the suit, you can't hear anybody. And everyone thought that he was being standoffish and nasty when he really just couldn't hear what the hell was going on. And, and after and a while, no one talked to him. Yeah. And, and that whole movie that he was in, I think it was the... Um, Oh, what's the name? The director who had the very sexy Robin. Oh, Jer- Jerry, Jerry, um, uh, um, Blake, Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. Right. Um, anyway, anyway, um, and the island of Dr. Oh, there is a brilliant bit. I will just give you this brilliant bit. So the island of Dr. Moreau is going terribly badly. Falcom has got his video camera out and, and says that the director can call cut and action as many times as he likes, but it doesn't mean he's a director. And then the director says, turn that video camera off. And, and, and he, Val won't turn it off. And they have this sort of standoff. And then Val just wanders outside. And there, like a beached whale, is Marlon Brando on a hammock. And so he goes up to Marlon Brando and says, what's the one thing the world doesn't know about you? And Marlon Brando is just lying there. And he just says, give me a push. And so he pushes the hammock. And he says, give me a hard push. It's just... It's just an amazing, it's really an amazing film. And he has had a tragic life, not just suffering from cancer, but his brother was a film director, genius, died very young, age of 15. It's really amazing. I see Academy Awards for this one, maybe. So let's take a break. Um, Whirlybird is now available to rent or buy on Apple TV, iTunes, and Amazon. Get all the latest at whirlybirdmovie.com, which is also a great doc. All right? What's the question? Um, well, MTV just turned 40, and I think we might be talking about that in a little bit, but who was the first artist who has ever played twice on MTV? Good question. Ooh, very good question. I thought I knew the answer, but I don't think I do. We'll have a, the answer right after the break. Listen to the Wow Report on Radio. Andy will be right back. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with James and Tom and Blake. Um, we had a question. Yeah. Who was the first artist who has ever played on MTV twice? I was going to say Buggles, of course, because that was the first artist ever played. And I guess they were maybe they were played twice. It was Buggles' video killed the radio star. I'm going to pick between Pat Benatar. I was going to say maybe Pat Benatar. Or Rod Stewart. Both oh, videos at the time. See, I was um, going to say, oh, keep going. You you pick yours. I was going to say either Billy Squire or who was it who did um, My Life's in Jeopardy. No, no, no. Uh, 
The Jay Giles no. band? No. Was it Jay Giles? No, but I know exactly that song. Anyway, what I'm going to say Pat Benatar. I'm going to say Billy Squire. Um, Tom, you were right. The first video was The Buggles. The second was Pat Benatar, so that's a good guess. The third was Rod Stewart. He did She Won't Dance With Me. And then 15th was Sailing. Sailing takes me away to where I'm going. All right, now you're listening to Yacht Rock on Radio Andy. Yacht Rock. (laughs) Carry on with the countdown. We're at number four. Tom, what made you go wow this week? Number four. I just, this is breaking news for me. Um, And it's a local LA story. But if you're in LA, Greenblatt's Deli on Sunset, right near, right? The Crescent Heights and Sunset is closing. There was rumors on Tuesday and Wednesday. It was confirmed. It was in the Hollywood Reporter. It's clo- closed at 8 p.m. on Wednesday. Have you guys been to Greenblatt's? You know what I'm talking about? Well, because it used to be right next door to the old numbers. Remember the Hustler Bar? Yes. Yeah, so I would go to Greenblatt's after going to the Hustler Bar. Brilliant. You couldn't get any trade. <laughs> it's also 8,000. It's also across the street from 8,000 Sunset, which still has a movie theater, but it used to be the Lemleys uh, 5. And remember, the 90s was all about independent films. And, and I say, as someone who's lived in L.A. for over 30 years, restaurants are like churches to me. It's the places you went and saw your tribe and saw your people. And Greenblatt's in the 80s, Green Bats Blatz was the place when I was an assistant at Gallimore Associates where I would order the deli platter for staff lunches. So I would eat Green Blatz at night and over order and eat it for dinner and as well. In the 90s, after independent films, which were the rage, with friends and boyfriends at the time, you would go see a movie there and you'd go across the street to Green Blatz afterwards. Well, wait a minute. Isn't it also right, right, uh, like three doors down is like, is it what the comedy shit? What, what is the famous? Yeah, the, um, the Laugh Factory. The Laugh Factory. Yes. Yeah. So you would always see those comedians there, like before yes. and after their show. It's yeah. It's very kind of show, but it's this place that was open late. Well, people were always there. In the, in the aughts, I work with my friend Scott McDonald. We, we worked on those Svetka vodka ads and we would meet at night there. So, like, Giant campaigns were like launched in the booths upstairs, and I brought sponsees there for my my uh, my not so uh, private uh, recovery things. And even during the pandemic, because it's right around the corner for me, I would order for delivery, like for comfort and nutrition during the pandemic from Greenblatt. So it's just it's just a restaurant; it'll pass. But it's been there since 1926. And they have like a long list. Marilyn Monroe, who used to live in my building, you know, Joe DiMaggio, Lenny Bruce, Orson Welles. I mean, everyone has been there. Um, and and as, no well, as well as the Jackie Masons and the, the um, you know, the Joe, uh, the yeah. all the Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld and Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, everybody, it's it's like one of those New York delis that like. Yes. Is the, is and I'm so scared the- because. The, I, I'm sorry, Fenton. This idea of the places to just go and park and eat and no pretense and good food and get it over with, they're just disappearing. And I'm going to be that old person who 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 longs for the past, but where are the cheap places to eat? And not, not even cheap. And Lucy used to bring her reel to reel to the green flash and she would talk 
to the ghost of W.C. Fields. Hey, I updated the story. I could have done Jane Withers uh, passing. I was going to but- do Jane Withers, too, and then I was going to – God bless you. Listen, I just very quickly, to put in Jane, some Jane Withers right there, is that Matthew Redman from Boy Culture, who is a, a good friend of World of Wonders, he interviewed her recently in 2020, and he was saying, how wild was it that there was – she was a child star in the 1930s, 1920s in silent movies and everything that she worked. Someone was alive who worked with W.C. Fields, yes. Shirley Temple, yes. had stories about Mary Pickford, and she would go to the conventions, she would go to the cons and sit and talk to anybody who would listen to her for an hour and got like that. There was somebody around from that era. It's just amazing to think that history is still alive and all around us. Indeed. Oh, all right, PJ, with us. Maybe we'll do her next week, right? Give us your number three, James. Number three. Number three. Uh, I went to go see a Suicide Squad. I went to a movie theater. And it's the last movie that I'm going to in a theater for probably the next year, I imagine. I went to go see Suicide Squad. DC's uh, not, it's not a sequel or a prequel. It's an equal to the 2016 Suicide Squad. It was directed by James Gunn, who did the Guardians of the Galaxy for Marvel. And now he's come to DC to do this. It is absolutely hysterical. Once again, the, the premise is, is that there are these prisoners, these super villains that are uh, recruited by a black ops opera team uh, headed up by the, the sadistic Amanda Waller played by Viola Davis. And they are, each one of them has separate superpowers, but they're put, they're taught, taken out on a suicide Michigan mission that they will probably never return from. But if they act up or refuse to do it, she's implanted bombs in the back of their head and she will blow your head off. And so nobody is safe. Nobody, all these supervillains, none of them are safe. At any moment, she can blow your head off and frequently does. And in this one, we have, once again, we have, we have Margot Robbie playing Harley Quinn, and she's absolutely genius. We have Joel Kinnaman, who is so sexy, and he is um, uh, Rick Flagg. We have um, uh, Idris Elba, who is uh, Bloodsport, I think. Pete Davison is in it. John Cena is um, the, the wrestler. John Cena is Peacemaker, and we get penis from him. We get him in tidy whities the whole time. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, the big surprise is... In the history of comic books, there is a character who is universally reviled and considered the silliest character ever to be created, and he's Polka Dot Man, and he shoots polka dots out of his hand. And this was in the 1950s. He was a Batman villain. And she has, uh, James Gunn has brought him back and turned him into the most you love this character. You empathize with him. You love him. You cry. You laugh. He is the most beloved character ever put on film, basically. And it's at you. It's it's absolutely. And it's so funny because this movie is so polarizing. There are people who think that it's the best thing DC has ever done. That it is absolutely hysterical. It is bloody. It is violent. It is. Uh, campy and everything. But then there are other people who think with a white hot passion that it's the worst movie ever put on film. And it's like this weird, like Democrats versus Republican, like, like there's never, there's no meeting in the middle of it. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Tom, what were you going to say? I just wanted to know, do you think that the character polka dots earned his stripes in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> 
There's also oh. another character called the Weasel, who is a weasel who murdered 27 children and ate them. And, but he is so lovable, and he is you laugh, you laugh, and you cry about Weasel. And everybody walks out saying that Weasel steals the entire show. He's so. Do you know good. the actors by any chance to play these parts or no? Oh, uh, yeah, David. Darmachian, I think, is his name. And he's done a lot of things, and he he wins a lot of awards. He is Polka Dot Man. And Weasel is played by uh, Sean Gunn, I think. I can't remember, but he was in um, Guardians of the Galaxy, and he was from Gilmore Girls. He's he's an actor whose face you would recognize. All righty. Moving on to number two. Wait a minute. Would you see it? Would you see it, Fenton? I would see it based on what you've just said. I would definitely it's, it's go on it. HBO Max, so you can watch okay. it right I now. Go, I would go check it out. I've always felt that you know it's Marvel versus DC, and I'm a Marvel person, but uh-huh. but I think I this might it. change your mind too because, like I said, it's James Gunn who did Marvel movies, so it has that same Marvel exactly. Yeah, but you know now now that Robin's gone gay, and you don't need to know who any of these people are because they all get introduced. Got it, marvelous. Okay, number two. Number two. MTV at 40. It was August 1st, 40 years ago. And I tell you why I wanted to talk about this was because, you know, I was scrolling through my Facebook and suddenly you noticed someone saying, oh, 40 years at MTV, you know, and they're talking about what it was like to work there. And then you scroll on, then there's another one, and then another one, and another one. It's like, I was like, oh my God, did everybody work at MTV? Tom Campbell, I know you did, right? I met you when you came to pitch me at MTV in 92. There you go. There you go. I mean, and I just thought it was interesting in that I'm not really aware of any other channel that seems to command such affection from people in the sense that no one would, if NBC turned 50 years or however old NBC might be, I just don't see people having that affection and that, that real visceral reaction or connection to it. And I also think in the history of all their shows, because the music videos was just the initial phase of MTV, and then they went on to programming, you know, Osborne's, Jackass, Punk, Laguna Beach, Jersey Shore, The Hills. Um, all of these actually were greenlit by Brian Graydon, who, you know, is on the Facebook feed with, you know. I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, there's, there's no question it must have changed. It has changed the culture profoundly, right? I think there's a book to be written. Well, I, 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 I was 13, I believe, and it was my birthday. August 1st was the day that it, it uh, debuted. And I remember just it, the, it, it was like a thunder thundercloud. It was like a lightning bolt hitting every teenager simultaneously. And you got it was a window into especially the British scene and all those, you know, uh, flock of seagulls and things like that that we didn't we hadn't seen in America yet. And what it really see? opened yeah. up the world to people like all of a sudden you got to see culture you know pop culture in a way that you hadn't seen before that's right because i the british were really ahead of the game in terms of making music videos like we were we, we had them. you know we had journey and billy squire and pat benatar but they were doing like literally you know they were the boy george and the, we had you the know. Blitz kids we had david bowie mm-hmm. ashes to ashes we had visage fade to gray i mean this whole sort of second wave as it was called or new wave and and then eventually after about six months or a year the americans caught on that you've got to change the way you're doing shit and you gotta you know and then you get get in the game and before the invention of the internet cable television was the revolution right the idea that there'd be like any interest you had there'd be a channel for it 
and not all of those promises came true. And there was like Camelot, a brief timing moment. You know, CN was very important for a long time because it was the news channel and everyone turned to it for news. And MTV for that, that decade or so was music television and it was about music and it was the coolest people and the coolest trends and the coolest styles. And they were able to translate that for a decade or more with the shows you're talking about and making television for that audience and still sort of, you know, and it's an amazing time. I will say, because nostalgia is lovely and you forget a lot of the stuff, but I worked at MTV sort of in the second wave. A lot of the interns, Doug Herzog, Lauren Correo, all those people would come in as interns and young people had become like the, the senior VPs and run it and were doing an amazing job. But it was, and they had great pride in it because they had home, they'd grown it, you know, from scratch. Mm-hmm. They took chances and they, they broke the rules and they edited things differently. And they just, you know, it was kind of old fashioned and newfangled all at the same time. Oh, I do and, want to say, uh, to, to get a piggyback on that, is that, that fundamentally changed the way Hollywood edited TV yeah. shows and movies and everything. Suddenly, right. you had short, punchy yes. scenes. The and, idea and everything was close-ups and over the shoulders went away. Uh-huh. Tell the story, make it dance. And the only thing I'll say is, but during my time at MTV, and it was only a couple of years, I wasn't as, as as a senior there. Is they said working for MTV is like dating a beautiful girl who treats you like shit. Because it was also they over, it sort of exploited young people at the beginning. You know, it was young, it was long hours, it was relentless. which is where World of Wonder learned that particular trick. No, but it, and that's where great things come from. But I'm just saying it, it was you know it wasn't um, posh. It was the coolest place in town. It was downtown. And I just want to say very quickly, uh, "Love's in Jeopardy" is by the Greg Kinn Band. Baby. I pretend to have forgotten about it, not to make it all about me, but um, I worked at 120 minutes for a few weeks and wrote a couple of shows. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I, wrote I was there for four days I was, I I was in so 1991. And took it to Kevin Seal, who I thought was really cute. And he took one look at it and said, I can't say this shit. It was just like words, too many words. It was like, <laughs> now that was it. All right. Um, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll reveal the number one thing that made us go wow this week. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. And welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with Tom and James. And we've reached number one. Number one. Well, how could it be anything other than number one? The real bombshell that happened this week. Am I right, Tom? Take it away. The resignation of Governor Andrew Cuomo. And every Cuomo sexual in the country feels defeated and lied to. Remember when we remember a year ago how we thought he was the great white or the great savior of the of the Democratic Party. Yeah, he's a, he's a very powerful commander. The thing is that people are many things. I'm not making an excuse for his behavior, but people are many things. They're alpha, they're alpha, they're leaders, they're commanding, they get your attention. They can also be inappropriate, not know boundaries and, and take you know things for granted and behaviors that are, aren't cool anymore. Um, in, in defense of, it, it's, it's, it's humbling when it happens to someone on your team, if you're going to call it that. Because you want to believe, you want your heart to believe them, and over time you couldn't. And this is where I give the Democrats great uh, points: is there was a commission, 
There was a there was an investigation. It was thorough. The report was released. It wasn't held. You know what I'm saying? That's the, the Republicans play another way. Re- Republican, that- Republicans, Trump gets uh, Jim Jordan. All of them have sexual scandals hanging over them. And the yes. Republicans consistently turn their heads and pay no attention to it. At least the Democrats do the right thing. And yeah. when there's a cancer, you get rid of it. And I'm disappointed that he's gone. I'm disappointed that um, he had to leave. And I'm uh, disappointed that Chris Cuomo chose to address it the way he did on CNN by not addressing it. And I think Chris Cuomo has been helping his brother all along try and finagle his way out of the situation. It's disappointing that Chris Cuomo is getting swept up and they're calling I, for him to resign yes. from CNN. And I don't know all the details with the brother who I think is really, I'm homosexual for Chris, but like, Imagine if you're brought if these things are being said about your brother and yeah. you believe them to not be true. You know, then then where do you, you know where's your loyalty land and how do you deal with it as a public person? It's a very difficult situation. It is, but, 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 but for CNN to put out the edict that Chris Cuomo was not allowed to talk to it on the air made it look like he was part of a cover up or whatever. I think the thing to do is you have to address it head on. And they they tried to sweep it under the rug for Chris's show. And it just made him look sort of cringy and and, yeah. and wrong. I just I, I didn't like that. I hope that part passes because I think it's very difficult. You know, with all of the bravado of these public figures, they're people, they're vulnerable, they're scared, they've got family. I know there's lots of things, but I think the right thing was done. And I, I again, it, I, what I, I'm just, you know, it always feels like the Democrats cave or the and, and the Republicans don't. But I do feel like at least we don't play by those same dirty rules. And if that is our end as a party or as a civilization, so be it. You know, it's just like, I think the truth is stronger and who knows, it's too early to know what might be next for Andrew Cuomo, if anything, but maybe well, chapter, but- a, a, a learning and, and, a, and an awakening and a, new mission for him. I don't well, know. I, I think we're done with Andrew Cuomo. I don't think we need to revisit it. I do think that right now we need to turn our focus to the new female governor, the woman who is at, she, I like the way she looks. I like the, I like what I hear from her so far. Although there have been a few, um, I, I see in the daily mail, they're starting to dig up dirt about her and that there's all sorts of uh, her husband is uh, it, the it, entertainment commission in New Jersey or something that it looks like a conflict of interest that they're going to try and play upon as they do. So that's where I'm interested to see what's going. I don't think we need to keep following up with Andrew Cuomo anymore. Right. And we've run out of time. Oh, James, thank you so much. Blathering on and on and on. <laughs> as you you. Do. Hey, uh. Well, actually, James, for you, I've got one last plug. Um, this week's episode of the Wow Podcast Networks, The Things That Made Me Queer with Crystal, um, who's in RuPaul's Drag Race UK Season 1. It's a great podcast. And this week's episode is all about me. So um, I can't recommend it enough. It's absolutely fabulous. And Wait, James, what? you should go on this podcast. Wait, what? You're, you're Crystal, said, Crystal said you made her queer? <laughs> it's a podcast called the things that made me queer and you talk about it's a bit like desert island discs or desert island dicks if you will where you talk about the seminal things that made you queer seminal and and crystal said that you made her queer no love the podcast is called the things that made me queer and guests go on and talk to crystal about the things in their life products shows people paintings places that made them queer 
And this week, you are the, the person who talks about the things. Thank that you. We got there in the end. I think we have to cut okay. all this out. But yes. <laughs> I think that exchange just made me queer. <laughs> I was going to say we might have to do an investigation and then impeach Fenton for making Crystal queer. God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> same time, same place. Next week. Until then, go out and do something that makes the world go wow. wow. Bye.